Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The, the cars, you know, passed each other on the, on the highway there on the road going over the, the bridge. And that's when they, they saw opportunity. And I'm not, I can't, say for sure who instigated the, the fight, but they were in a war. After Pellegrino Scalia was killed, um, they were in a war. So um, first opportunity that they had to, to you know, fight it out, they, they went for it. The legends of the American Mafia are woven into the fabric of American society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the stories of the men of this secret society. They're stories of family, power, wealth, respect, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mob may be over, the stories have become lore and the names remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Members Only Podcast. Hosted by history buff and mob aficionado, Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Members Only Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a mob enthusiast and historian. In today's episode, we're going to do our first ever interview. I'm really excited about it, uh, and I've decided that it's time to change things up a little bit, and I'll give you a few of the reasons real quick before we jump into the interview itself. First, my goal is to document the real history of the mafia in America, and I've kind of come to the decision that you can't really do that without hearing directly from the people who either lived it or who were closely connected to it. I waffled for a really, really long time, and I apologize to those people that have reached out for, for me asking to, to do an interview uh, that I've just not responded to. And that's primarily because I was waffling on whether or not I wanted to do interviews on this podcast. But in the end, it came down really to my desire to document the history, and that means talking to people. I kind of see each episode as kind of like an investment, right? As a way to put together a mosaic of the life. And my ultimate goal is that each episode will ultimately blend together to form a larger picture of the history of Cosa Nostra in America. Now, secondly, uh, I fully realize that my episode production is way, way, way slower than many other channels. Uh, and don't worry, I still plan to bring you the same types of episodes I have thus far. 
uh, with the same painstaking amount of detail, but interviews and other types of content will allow me to kind of fill the gaps, so to speak, while I'm researching and putting together the more biographical or documentary style episodes. Uh, I am and always will be incredibly thorough with the way I research and piece together episodes, but that takes a really, really, really long time. For example, the Small Dome episode probably took well over a hundred hours before I stopped counting. As a result, shifting towards interview style content will really help me balance and provide more from a quantity standpoint, and they are far faster to produce. Uh, and this is all in order to give you a more consistent flow of content while still allowing me time to do the background digging that you've become accustomed to. And lastly, I've been interested in this genre for a long time before deciding to create a podcast, and I've never really actually had any direct connections. Uh, like I've said before, I'm just a small-town nobody who happens to be fascinated by the mob, loves mob movies, uh, and has had a love for history for in, essentially my entire life. Uh, but that all, you know, you put that all together, and you've got this podcast. Uh, and I believe that making connections and hearing other voices, especially those who are a lot closer to the life than myself, really lends more authenticity to the information I'm sharing on a regular basis. So I've got a list of people that I'd love to, to interview and who I plan to reach out to, but I'm also looking for you know, non-traditional interview ideas. Uh, and just like my episodes, my goal is a little different than most podcasts. Now, generally speaking, while I'm open to talking to anyone, I'd like to really focus on little known stories or instances of regular people running up against the mob, living side by side with the mob, growing up with or near the mob. And this means that I won't be talking to the folks who are the most uh, popular or well-known within the current ecosystem of mafia YouTube. And I think you all know who those uh, typical people that you see get interviewed or the, the kind of regular talking heads are. Uh, in fact, some of the people I hope to interview will be just regular people like myself who nobody has heard of. And if this is you, I'd be interested in hearing your story. So please email me at membersonlypodcastshow at gmail.com and we'll talk and see if your story is the right fit for an interview on this podcast. And now without further ado, uh, we've got a really amazing guest lined up. So let's get to the interview. everybody. Uh, this is uh, Jacob Stoops, uh, host of the Members Only Podcast. Uh, and as I will have said in my introduction, we're trying something new here on the podcast. Uh, and we are going to begin to get into interviews. Um, I know that I take a long time to put out episodes, but it's primarily because the, the content that I put out, I don't put it out unless I feel confident that I've done a, a high degree of journalistic rigor on it therefore it means that it takes me weeks and sometimes months and i feel like uh integrating some new content into the podcast would be a, a good thing to mix it up for my audience 
uh, and a good thing to make sure that I'm continually producing content. So with that being said, everybody knows uh, if you've watched my recent episodes, I've been, uh, I'll just say in a Colorado mob rabbit hole, uh, which I promise I will come out of at some point. Um, but in doing my research, uh, I came across a, a fairly interesting person who is here with me uh, and fairly paramount to a lot of the history uh, that I was able to kind of dig up uh, about the Colorado mob and how it kind of started. Um, so with me today is Sam Carlino. Sam, I'll allow you to kind of, uh, you know, give your give your background and explain to the audience um, how you fit into the the Colorado mob history and lore and kind of uh, who you are and, and, you know, your background. Hey, thanks, Jacob. Uh, well, my grandfather was Pete Carlino. And as you know, he was uh, pretty much an infamous figure in uh, Colorado uh, bootlegging lore, uh, mafia, first mafia family, really. Uh, he had four brothers. Unfortunately, they all perished by gunshot, if you can believe that. Um, so Pete, Sam, Carlo, and Stefano uh, were, were all uh, instrumental in right after the, the induction of the Bone Dry Act in 1916, with bringing prohibition, you know, bringing um, uh, bootlegging and uh, illicit alcohol to the Colorado region, and that's uh, he's he's uh, a fixture, you know, in 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 Colorado uh, mafia history. Yeah, the interesting thing, um, as I was doing my research, that I did not realize that such a you when you think of immigration um you know you think of the big the big you know east coast port uh hub cities um you know the new york boston i guess even chicago if you get into the midwest really the last thing or the last place i would have thought about was colorado being a hive for italian immigration and i think my research indicated that um, you know, in the early 1900s, something like one out of four or one out of five, I can't remember the exact number, people living in Colorado were Italian, of Italian descent. Uh, and your grandfather and great uncle uh, came over, and maybe you can fill in some of the gaps for me. I believe they came from Agrigento. Uh, uh, I don't know if that's, is that, yeah, that's mainland Italy? They come from the town of Luca Sicula. Okay. And small uh, town in Agrigento province. Yep. It came, uh, my great grandmother's family came here in 1888, uh, the Regios, and then the Carlinos settled in 1897, um, while the Regios were in um, New Orleans until 1897. When the Carlinos arrived, they, they made the trek to Pueblo, Colorado, and and uh, that area, that region, they they bounced around from a lot of little towns between Walsenburg and and Pueblo and Sugar City and uh, you know Trinidad. So they they were in a lot of different areas uh, just after the turn of the century, all the way up to 1920. They probably moved three or four times. Yeah, and one of the um, the other interesting things is Colorado. So um, if you think about one of the big propellant propellers, I should say of uh you know ga gangsterism um the mob mafia is of course prohibition 
uh, and I've I've talked about that uh, you know quite often on my podcast. That was the the singular event that propelled um, you know a lot of people, not just of Italian descent, but to be able to flip the class system that was in place. Uh, and of course, you know, I feel like classes uh, are ruled by money. And that was a way for a lot of young Italians at the time to find a way to make money really, really, really quickly. And with money, you can do the things that that get you power. Uh, and what I didn't know uh, was that Colorado went dry a full like three to four years before the rest of the company or country. Um, so I feel like your, you, you know, your grandfather and your uncles got a bit of a, a bit of a head start on everybody. Well, they did. They had a four-year head start on prohibition. But what was interesting, most Sicilians before 1916, uh, a, a lot of prominent Sicilians were, or, were gangsters, were using the black hand to, yep. uh, to, to get money out of other Italians. And it wasn't until about 1915 or so when they made uh, sending letters in the mail uh, a federal crime and, and the, the fines were pretty stiff, you're, you're gonna end up in jail for a long time, that that stopped or slowed down the, the amount of uh, black hand letters and extortion that was going on. And my great grandfather was um, rumored to have been part of a black hand scheme through a Bureau of Investigation report that was uh, done around 1918 and 1919 that, uh, that I have uh, regarding the La Presto murders. And I can go into a little bit on that a little bit later with, sure. uh, with <laughs> Michael Hare because I've been working with him uh, when he, he's helping me on my book and I helped him, I'm helping him on his book with research. And um, it goes it goes well back, you know, even, you know, just at the, the dawn of the prohibition era in 1916 or so when, when this stuff starts in Colorado. So in... 1916 and and so i'm gonna i'm gonna gather that throughout that time period they're um doing their thing uh, as far as the 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 black hand goes eventually that fizzle, fizzles out uh in favor of the more you know highly organized organized groups um it was much more lucrative for bootlegging yeah it, it was um and and uh I think one of the interesting things is, at least from my research, and you can tell me if I'm if I'm wrong. Your family had a had a farm; they were farmers yeah. uh, to begin with. And once you you know the dollar signs, you started to see the dollar signs of of prohibition. They decided to convert their farm, at which point they um, started making moonshine whiskey, sugar moon whiskey. Now, I guess. What I would like to understand is how do they go from farmers to bootleggers and then building eventually an operation so large and significant that your grandfather becomes known as the Al Capone of Southern Colorado? Like, how does one go from point A to point to point B? I think he got that reputation because, like Al Capone, he was ruthless in, in attaining his power. Uh, they had a run-in, uh, started in 1922 with the Dana family, which we're actually related to. We're blood cousins. We're, we're fourth cousins to the Danas through DNA tests, which is, which is amazing to me because I didn't know that until 
after I wrote my book and I was approached by Chuck Dana at the Denver Library and he, he asked me if I recognized any of the names on the ancestry DNA chart with him and my first cousin is his fourth cousin basically you know so okay. uh, I thought we were just um, related to the Danas through marriage when the Piscopo sisters uh, married in, you know, to the Danas and, and the, the Carlinos, but it wasn't. We're actually related back in Sicily. And that's what makes it even more intriguing because um, for whatever reason, they were cousins. They didn't get along in Sicily. I never could find out from my dad or my uncles why. They just, it was bad blood, but it got uh, a couple things tipped off. Well, number one was the killing of Pellegrino Scalia in 1922. And um, and also, it the the um, the Vesmer water ditch uh, uh, issue with John Dana, and but that wasn't so much with our family. There was a water rights issue between the two farms, but what really started off the the entire uh, war between the Carlinos and the Danas were the was the killing of Pellegrino Scalia. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And this is a war that, according to my research, um, lasted almost a, almost a, a decade uh, and lots of shooting uh, back and forth uh, from what I saw. And I, I read a statistic that from 1919 to 1933, and I'm sure we'll get into, into more of this, there were um, at least law enforcement in, in Denver uh, suspected that there were about 30 gangland homicides. And I, I just have to say, and I don't know if you got this feeling, my oh. feeling was that that number was significantly low based yeah. on the amount of shooting that I saw but back and forth in my research. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think it was, it was way low. Yeah. Uh, you know, anytime that you, you create an environment. See, the problem with prohibition was they, they had this idea of let's just outlaw alcohol, but they didn't really think it through on how they can enforce it. How much it's, it's, yeah, it's very unpopular. Yeah. You know, how many officers and, you know, what rights are going to be infringed and, uh, you know, it, it, on and on. It was a logistical nightmare for them trying to figure out how they were going to enforce this new law. And, you know, it, it it's the only amendment that's ever been repealed yeah and it um well you know you can you can uh take alcohol away but that doesn't mean people still don't want to drink it and when you don't have the infrastructure there and you still have a thirsty public well guess what's going to happen there's going to be a somebody there to supply the de the demand and that's exactly what happened um so you know the the Carlinos, their reputation is and their operation is continuing to continuing to grow. And then the war with the Danas um, starts out, and uh, Pellegrino Scalia is is killed. And really, I feel like the if, if I'm remembering it right, the shooting with the Danas, the Carlinos took quite a bit 
of damage at first before they really started getting getting back. And I believe that uh, in addition to Scalia, the next hit was your great uncle, Carlo. Yeah, that happened in September 10th, 1923, when Carlo was killed at the Baxter Bridge shootout. And that really just changed the whole trajectory of the war because we were down, you know, John Millay was killed, yeah. John Millay Sr., and, and uh, a, a couple bodyguards and, and Pellegrino Scalia. And, and, and now once Pete's brother, little brother gets killed, it, it's, it's, it just becomes a war of epic proportions. They, they were gonna go down at the end. And yeah. these guys are, you know, the, the Sicilian culture of, of the vendetta, it's, it's really hard to explain to people. It's ingrained in their culture for hundreds of years. And when they when they swear a vendetta on somebody, it's you know, it's for life. Yeah, in the um the interesting thing is the the shootout, I can't remember um 40 to a hundred or something shots fired in the in the shootout, but it's and I was actually Frank Messina went back and and got more uh, got more, yeah. And the the interesting thing that well one I thought it was is really cool that in in my research I was able to find kind of an approximate location and then go into Google Maps and try to find the spot where it had occurred and I think I got pretty pretty close um, but a, a lot of the newspaper reporting made in addition to to a, a big deal about the shootout. Um, your 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 great uncle Carlo, it almost seemed like it was started was a bit of an execution, uh, more than just a, a chance, you know, ambush or, or shootout. Um, and I don't know if that, you know, if you found anything anything well, like I, that as well. Yeah, there was that the, the cars, you know, passed each other on the on the highway there on the road going over the, the bridge. And that's when they they saw opportunity and I'm not, I can't say for sure who instigated the, the fight, but they were in a war. After yeah. Pellegrino Scalia was killed, um, they were in a war. So um, first opportunity that they had to, to you know, fight it out, they, they went for it. And they had them pinned down. It was pretty evenly matched until they went back and got reinforcements and, and made a call from, from the Dana's house and they were able to to get more uh, more men and more supplies, and then it, it it went from like two on two to like six on two, and they were just outgunned. Yeah. And the sandbar that's still there, like they said that, that yeah, you can see that. If you look at the flow of the river, and they describe it in in, in the the accounts, uh, in the trial, and and even in the the, uh, the newspapers about what side who who was on what side. And you could see the sandbar where Carlo floated down and his body lay resting on it. And it's still there to this day. It's crazy. Yeah. And um, so if you watch my uh, part one video, you can see the sandbar, I believe, in the um, in the Google Street View, which is, uh, again, just really, really interesting. Not something I, you know, I thought I would uh, dig in and, and find. Um so a couple of years, and it, it, again, they're shooting, going back and forth, in in bodies dropping in this in this conflict for years, but eventually, uh, your uncle Pete, or I'm sorry, your um, grandfather Pete and your great uncle Sam, catch up with the two main 
Dana Brothers. Uh, and the the way that I read it is that it was a classic gangster style hit where the Danas are going and they're standing outside of a pool hall and they, you know, your your grandfather and your uncle speed up uh, in a car, you know, leaning out the window with the Tommy gun and mow them down. So I think it was shotguns. I'm not shotguns. sure. Okay. Uh, shotguns were um, were more of their, their gun of choice at that time. Um, more forgiving, you know, you could, you could be off a little bit and still hit your target. And, it, you know, they do a lot of damage. You get the right shotgun shells, it, it could be, could be really damaged. And it's yes. interesting that they, at that time, a lot of these guys would, would do, make their own rounds, you know, would, uh, would reload and they would, they would make poison bullets. They'd actually make homemade yep. poison bullets by dipping the, the bullets in garlic and garlic would cause a terrible infection inside the body. Even if they cut, they winged a guy, they, it, you know, it yeah. might killing him in the long run with, it, with some sort of infection. So, yeah. And I, um, I found, and we'll, we'll talk about it towards, I think the end of this episode definitely found some, some interesting things um, related to your, your grandfather's passing uh, and poison, poison bullets. There were uh, definitely indications that, that that was what was used um so eventually this war with the danas ends uh the the carlino brothers end up you know at some point getting the last dana brother and in 1926 when they kill both dana you know, yeah. sam dana's on the run and he's no longer a threat so yep. they were looking for him for four years yeah he never created a threat to them at all and that's that four-year period between 26 and 30 is when when Pete and Sam really get the foothold in and and mm -hmm. by 28 they're moving into Denver and yep. really becoming very powerful in that four year period. Yeah, and um, you know when you move into into Denver and this is something I brought up um, in the Small Dome episode. Uh, you know, at least in my in my opinion, controlling uh, the, the the mobs were definitely in Pueblo, but controlling Denver because of the sheer population was uh probably you know made made you more important yeah they had a bigger marketplace bigger uh, marketplace so getting a foothold in in denver and really um owning it and consolidating uh your power would have been really important to controlling the overall state and you're right in this time and i think it's after the killings of the two dana brothers is when he really starts to get that nickname and then their business uh, as far as I could could tell, really starts to grow and boom. But also in Denver at that time, and this is going to be an important name, is a guy named Giuseppe Joe Roma starting to get a foothold. Uh, he has uh, the occupation of uh, grocer, uh, but in reality, uh, he was uh, a gangster, diminutive, very small, tiny guy, um, but had a lot of power and in, in, in was building a power base as well. And I think, um, you know, I would love to understand what that relationship was like between, between the two, the Roma's organization and your, and your um, grandfather and uncles. They were working together and all the way up until January of 31, where Roma pulled a fast one on him with the bootleggers convention. Actually, it was called a Bootleggers Congress. Yep. But the Bootleggers Convention 
most people think that the undercover agent Lawrence Baller Selly that had infiltrated the Carlino family uh, all the way back in November of 1930, that he's the one that called it in. He wasn't. He I have Baller Selly's reports, and I unfortunately I've. I got this dumped in my lap after I wrote the book, but I, I have them now. They're very Interesting. important. Um, and he claims that he was very upset that they broke up the the Congress, uh, the the meeting at, at uh, the Pomarta restaurant there, um, because he wanted to to really find out more information about what they were doing. And he said the police really kind of blew it, uh, but. Joe Roma and the Small Domes. The Small Domes were the the strong arm of, of Roma, uh, strong arm men for him, and yep. they were absent from the the meeting. Now in January, December and January, I have pictures of Raphael Small Dome and the two younger uh, Small Dome boys. I think Chauncey and one I can't remember offhand, but. Yeah, Clyde and, Clyde and Checkers were, were the, the two main ones at the at that time. Yeah, so they're they're in um, they're in a picture with our cousin Joe Petrolia, who had come out uh, from California to be Sam's bodyguard. Well, Joe Petrolia gets pretty jealous when he finds out that the bodyguard's not going to be himself for Sam. It's actually going to be the new federal undercover agent, uh, Lawrence Bolaroselli, and he's. He's worked his way into the family, kind of like the very first Donnie Brasco. Yeah, that's so interesting. Neil to, to go in with this group and to, to hear his accounts and to find out, you know, because he was investigating the murder of Kearney. Dale Kearney was a prohibition agent that was killed in July of 1930. And by August, um, Ralph Carr put together a team of three agents and these three agents were supposed to infiltrate the Carlino family and go down in, in Pueblo and Aguilar. And two of the guys were made in the first day. So the only one that was not made was Valdoricelli, and he's the one that actually helps bring the, the Carlino family down. And I'm going to fast forward. Um, the the agent i believe it's baldessarelli or baldessar i don't know if i'm pronouncing it pronouncing it right um he gets it's shot not, i don't pronounce it correctly either yeah he gets shot in 1933 so it was a, a hazardous occupation and i'm a firm believer uh that roma and one of roma's henchmen were the ones that roma was a for a small guy he was a busy and a violent guy and i think he he did the shooting uh in that case or was right there doing the beating uh, when Baldessarelli was shot uh, a couple of years later. Um, so the bootleggers convention was a really, really important event. So the, the Carlinos had just gone through the Dana War throughout most of the 20s. Uh, they eventually, uh, in the early 30s, kill off the, the last Dana brother and finish, uh, finish the vendetta, so to speak. Uh, and then at about this time, you know, when you're trying to take control of a, you know, of a major metropolitan area, with lots of players in there in, in, in this was every family in the United States having these types of issues uh, where lines were drawn along, uh, you know, different groups of Italians, different ethnicities, and everybody's trying to make a buck. You're bound to uh, bump into one another from time to time. And if you don't have alliances, well, those interactions can go 
pretty poorly. So the way I interpreted this bootleggers convention in 1931, which I believe was was called by Roma, was sort of a a way to cool things down before things got things got worse, uh, you know, form uh, partnerships. Uh, I, I believe there was uh, an effort to do some some, uh, you know, price fixing uh, and, and to talk about how they were going to price alcohol. You know, what's interesting reading Waller-Selly's file yeah. and his reports was that Sam and Pete were, was not even uh, at the meeting. Really? Ignacio Vaccaro was representing the family at the meeting. That was Ignacio Vaccaro's our cousin. And he was um, the bodyguard for Sam, for Pete, my grandfather. And they were at home at the time of the, uh, uh, when they broke it all up and they arrested them at their house and they arrested them for vagrancy, <laughs> which was funny. <laughs> that was a pretty common charge. They were in their own home and they, they knock on the door and they're getting arrested for vagrancy. And I, I just thought that was funny. They, I see they, that a lot in my research. It's like, if you can't pin anything else on them, vagrancy. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. You know, walking down the street and he saw the, the, the cops going to, to the house. So he turned around and walked back and then he visited Sam in, in jail. And, and he said, you know, yeah, we got, we got pinched for this thing. And they got off within a day, though. Who do you think dropped the dime on that meeting? It was Roma. It was Joe Roma. And yeah. that's what Sully says in his report. The trap. And, Joe Roma, and he was upset that the police went in and raided it. He was like, you guys could have found out a lot more information if you had not, you know, bull rushed these guys. Yeah, that that was, you know, I was trying to to figure out all sides and that was in the first episode of the Colorado mob series kind of what I speculated is as well but I also wasn't sure about the Baldessarelli connection and um you know I could it's hard 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 to know um shortly after this meeting uh, gets busted I think it's a couple of months later Pete's house blows up so tell us tell us about that okay so on February 18th, Pete gets shot at on the street corner. Yep. And they, they, they miss him. He realizes that, that him and Sam are both marked men, that Roma is gunning for him now. He's running out of money. He needs to go back east and get approval, basically, to help take out a boss. So he needs to, to get approval back east from the higher-ups, which would be Maranzano, and he plans a trip on March 3rd to go to New York. Now, Bala Sorelli is responsible for driving him to Omaha. He drops him off. He writes about this in his report. And he says that's the last time that he sees Pete is in around um, March 5th of 1931. Bala Sorelli passes on all the information to the, the feds and they follow my grandfather all the way across the country. He's being tailed the entire time he's making his trip through Milwaukee, Chicago, uh, and all the way to Brooklyn. Now, when Baldur Aselli gets back to, to um, Denver, he's part of the plot and he's privy to all the information that's being 
passed on about blowing up the house, they're going to blow up Pete's house himself and make it look as if rival bootleggers had done it. And he was going to collect the insurance because he had it insured double. He had it for two different insurance companies for the house's value was around $5,000. So he was going to get around ten, eleven thousand dollars $11,000 in return because Sam had burned his house down in California the year before and it worked there. So they figured they'd try it again. And they didn't know that a federal undercover agent had, had you know, told the, the, the police chief and the mayor that it was going to happen. And it's interesting that the, the mayor or police chief didn't stop it. And then, so I don't want to fast forward through, uh, through everything, um, but their demise in 1931, I would say, it was pretty, it was pretty, pretty sudden. Uh, it was one thing uh, after, after another. Uh, and eventually uh, they don't get to Pete first. They get to your great uncle Sam first. Uh, so he is uh, standing, I believe. Um, I, I couldn't tell exactly what room in, in his house, but he's standing in his house uh, and he's, he's in, I'll let you describe it, uh, but he's talking to, to another man and he's assassinated. And I believe this is in around the fall of 1931 timeframe. Am I right? He, he, he was killed on May 8th, 1931. Oh, okay. And uh, he was having a meeting with Bruno Morrow and yep. Jim Coletti, their cousin. And Jim Coletti was hired as his bodyguard uh, to keep him protected. He wasn't allowed to have any guns in the house because he was out on bail. They had one gun hidden down in the, in the, the, um, the basement. But he had gotten a call from Bruno Morrow, who, was, who ran one of their stills. And he had been uh, felt slighted by, by the Carlians because he was expecting um, some extra money for, um, for a job that he got pinched on and he, he didn't get uh, reciprocated uh, enough as, as, as much as he wanted. He and was a he was a relatively young guy. I think at the time he was 18 or 19. year old kid. And he came in the house and they had a conversation and everything was going good. And my grandmother was there and my great aunt was there. My grandmother left with, uh, with the other Coletti uh, bodyguard. And just as they were saying goodbye, he took a shot at uh, Coletti, wounded him and took a shot at Sam and actually shot him through the back. And it went into his heart and he died pretty suddenly. So this was more related to the, their personal issue than anything ordered by Roma? Or do you feel like Roma was pushing this? Because he had switched alliances. They found out that, that, um, that Bruno Mora was disgruntled, was not happy with the Carlino family. And whenever they find, you know, when you find out about these things in a, in a rival gang, if you can get that guy to turn, you got an end. And they weren't suspecting right. Bruno Morrow at all. They've known him, you know, since he was a kid. And, you know, in fact, their, his sister was their, their, uh, their babysitter, you know, their house cleaner uh, back in, you know, with the, from uh, Aguilar. It's so. amazing how interconnected all of this is uh, in terms of the, familial or friend 
relationships. That's just something that I have found fascinating uh, digging into this. And I know it's very similar in, in other cities as well. Um, but to hear how close these people were, but then they're also murdering each other um, is amazing. Um, amazing. So, yeah, yeah, fascinating. It's more like it. A <laughs> um, couple of months later, you know, after the assassination of Sam, uh, Pete, who is still on the run, uh, is eventually captured uh, and brought in, and his bond. Uh, of $5,000 was paid by, guess who? Joe Roma. Yeah, so, there's there about three or four different uh, people on the bond, but Joe Roma was was one of the, was definitely the most famous of them. And uh, it was, it was, he had been told, so this is, so there was a newspaper report that that I put in my book, first time that, 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 I tied the Maranzano connection with my grandfather uh, together. And when my grandfather went to Brooklyn, this is what Bob Lorcelli talked about in his report. And he said that Pete was going back East to talk to, he didn't use him by name, but to talk to the, the, the big boss and get things squared away. When he went back out there, a ruling was made. They, they looked into it. And they realized that my grandfather was being reckless. And they said, no, you, you're not going to be in power anymore, but you were going to be um, stripped of your power. But, you know, you know, he's one of the older guys. He was the same age as Maranzano. And yeah. he had a lot of respect, both Sicilian. And he says, look, you know, you're going to stay alive, but you're just not going to be able to be in power anymore. On the shelf. Right. So... What happens with, after Maranzano makes that decision and basically says to, to, um, uh, to Roma, hey, you know, that you're, you know, you're in complete power now. Uh, this guy's going to live. Roma bails him out. He does the right thing. Well, two things happen. My grandfather starts reorganizing and starts getting, uh, trying to, to, to really get him foot back into the, the game again, which he wasn't supposed to do. And number two, the most important thing is he allowed a federal undercover agent to infiltrate the family. Yep. And that was a big no-no. So those two big things right there is what I think precipitated, I think Maranzano giving the okay, because well, this, is, this is what Gentile, Nicola Gentile talks about in his book. Um, about the Maranzano mur murder with, with Luciano and Lansky and them was that the September 10th, 11th day of the purge was actually supposed to be set to kill Luciano and Lansky and Ginevese and all those other guys. Well, they turned it around on them because the Mad Dog Cole, the guy that was supposed to kill Maranzano was actually coming up the stairs to have a meeting yep. and, and they saw him and he turned around and, and took off. They eventually killed him, but that was the guy that was, that was going to be the button man for Luciano. So it was really interesting to see how they were, um, they turned the tide. So I really believe that, that, that my grandfather was on that list, you know, that September 10th, September 11th day of, of purge. And it, it really got, uh, it happened because 
he was figured by our cousin Joe Petralia. In fact, it's funny because Joe Petralia's nephew still cuts my hair to this day. He's my barber for the last 55 years. <laughs> I've been going to him. So uh, he's got stories about his uncle. You know, it's pretty interesting. Wow. Yeah. And again, I, like I said, I'm, I, some of the familial connections that you've expressed to me are just um, fascinating is probably the only word uh, that really, really comes to mind. So I, I think, you know, you talked about it. Um, you, you know, Pete Carlino, your grandfather was, was on the list and uh, you know, uh, three months later thereabouts uh, after his bond was paid by Roma, he's assassinated. Yeah. Taken, uh, as far as I can tell, taken on a ride. And the research that I found indicated that the shooters used poison bullets. Uh, and he was uh, killed. Uh, and I, I don't know if he was killed first and then put under a bridge or killed under the bridge. Uh, but uh, long story off the road, and then they put him in their car. He was witnessed in town by yeah. several and there was two cars involved um and i think they brought him out to asylum road and and executed him two in the back one in the head and back of the head that's why his face was it was hard to to, to yeah. describe who he was and then they threw him under the bridge and we realized for two days nobody, nobody found him found him so yeah they, they dragged him out and then they made the phone call to the coroner and they made a phone call to my grandmother. And then it was, um, and then it was discovered. And, and the, the interesting thing here, as we kind of touched on was this happens almost to the day, if not to the day of the Maranzano execution. So the, the legend that you hear, and there, there have been a lot of, um, a lot of reports that have suggested some say it, it, it definitely happened. Others say it did not happen. But what I'm talking about is the, the legendary night of the Sicilian Vespers where uh, Luciano and, and his group, in addition to assassinating Maranzano, uh, you know, conducted assassinations of mustache peats. No pun intended. Uh, Cause your, your grandfather did, did have a, have a nice mustache. Um, but uh the when you hear people that are on the naysayer list, they say, look, if you look at the newspapers around the time, the only gangland homicide is is one in Colorado. Well, and that's your grandfather. And there's uh, a few others in New York, but yeah, it's not, not a whole lot reported. But somewhere out in Colorado, this happened. And I wonder, you know, it, it, was it the coincidence or, or was it, you know, truly like you like you said, part of the the planned purge so the the very first scholar and writer to to look into this was umberto nelly and he wrote this book that basically explains that there was no purge he did all the legwork before the internet he had to go to all these cities he looked at up all the in all of the obituaries and all of the newspapers and all the accounts and he can only tie about three, three or four deaths that day, mostly around Brooklyn and my grandfather. But there was no perch. There was no 40 people killed because it started off as 10 and then 20. And then another writer took it to 30. Pretty soon, it's like getting up to 100. Some of these writers, 
with making this crap up and, and not infuriates me more than anything. And, and then you have um, shows that proliferate it uh, and you've got, uh, you know, really great, well done series. Like for example, the making of the mob, New York, excellent, excellent series talks about this big purge that, that never happened. So uh, maybe they need to, to, uh, hire some some fact checkers to go with their amazing cinematographers and, and storytellers. I think it's really important to steer away from the 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 more popular writers and look yeah. at some of the lesser known, like Thomas Hunt, who's yep. former. The Informer magazine, I think, is probably the best, but by far the best periodical that you can find on the mafia. And it covers all the hard to find bosses and all the hard to find stories and things that you're, you know, he's got these writers around the, the country that work with him that are doing the legwork. And it's amazing that what they're putting together each month or each, each quarter, I think he comes out with each one every quarter. And I highly recommend if you were into mafia history, look at the informer magazine, because that's, it really is amazing research. Yeah, that is um, definitely definitely on my list to read. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that I have gone in a different direction um, with my show to focus on lesser known people, because what I have seen, um, you hear all the same stories and it, it kind of just becomes regurgitated, a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy where if one writer says it, then the next writer parrots it out and then the next writer parrots it out. And it's a bit like the, the telephone game where it becomes more and more and more distorted uh, over time. Yeah. And, and everybody's all telling the same stories about the same potentially fictional things. Uh, so I, I like to take it a different, a different direction and talk about things that, well, people don't talk about often, uh, in this, in this genre. And I try to, I try my best. I'm not a journalist, uh, by any stretch, but I try to keep my standards of research to the, the old rule of journalism, which is, uh, at minimum two to three, uh, you know, really good sources for any, you know, any hard facts that you're, that you're putting forth, uh, which is why pretty much every episode, uh, I have is chock full of newspaper articles and FBI reports and things, um, that you have to dig and dig and dig, uh, to get. Um, and I often joke with my friends, uh, that on my tombstone, it's just gonna, it's just gonna say he was thorough. <laughs> uh, that's, yeah. that's what they're going to write. Um, Anyways, back to, uh, okay, so, you know, Pete Carlino uh, it has has been assassinated, and Joe Roma fills the power void uh, completely in Denver, in Colorado. He's, he's the guy, uh, but he only lasts two years, and I did a lot of research on Roma, and let me tell you, Joe Roma, in 1932 alone, that guy was a busy guy. They were, law enforcement and his enemies were on him. Uh, like uh, flies on flies on shit, so to speak. There, there was not a month that didn't go by without him getting you know, thrown in and out of jail or something happening relating to him, some sort of act of violence, a murder, uh, you know, something or other. And then eventually, Roma is is murdered in the front room of his house. Uh, and the the there were a lot of suspects at the time. Uh, but the ones that I felt like were most compelling were the subjects of my last episode, the small dones, uh, the, the, the small dones, 
that being Ralph, the father, um, uh, Eugene Smaldone and Clyde Smaldone, uh, were at Roma's house two hours before he was murdered. Well, Raphael was not. Oh, he was not. I'm sorry. I, I, I read the, the two Smaldone brothers. I apologize. Uh, at the house. And, and the, the, the two um, Smaldone brothers were there. But yeah. In, in addition to, um, to, a, to a few other compatriots at the house asking to borrow money uh, approximately two hours before Roma is killed. Uh, and then they had ticket stubs to a movie theater uh, around the time frame of 1.55 p.m. Roma is killed around 1.20, 1.30, something, something like that. Uh, but the the brothers, when they eventually heard heard that Roma was killed, uh, you know, turned themselves into police, and they all differed on the actual theater that they went to, which I thought, well, one, you're seen at the house, and two, it's just really suspicious. Um, now, I don't know that they did it, but it was really suspicious. I don't think you saw the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess I would ask you, as somebody else who has researched this and kind of, you know, knows the... Uh, the ins and outs of what was going on. Like, who do you believe killed Joe Roma? I, I truly think that it was the small domes because they had the most to gain. You always have to look at who has the most to gain when somebody is murdered, whether it's a president or a mob boss. And, uh, you know, who's, who's waiting in the wings to take over? And it was the small domes. And they stayed in power for another 60 years. Yeah, so, they certainly um, did. Yeah. So they... I think they were, you know, they were the last ones to be seen there. Nettie, his wife, yep. his wife saw him. She was going to go make sauce with her mother uh, around the corner. She comes back. She finds him. They said you shot 14 times. He was shot seven times. Yeah. He was so small. The 38s and 45s were going right through his body. Yep. It was 14 holes, but there was seven shots. Yeah. Um, and he was while, uh, playing he his mandolin. A fortress. He he wasn't going to let anybody inside the house that he didn't know or trust. Yep. Like Bruno Moro killed Sam Carlino, uh, you know, beyond orders of from Roma. Uh, it's so much easier to to kill someone in the mafia when they don't know it's coming. Yeah, that's why they. Uh, I believe that's why they 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 send send the people that can get close. Yeah. Uh, that's why they send the people that can get close. Um, so I guess one of the the other questions I wanted to ask you is, you know, your your uncles and the your your uncles and your grandfather in the grand scheme of things when they passed away uh, were not that old uh, and uh, left behind family. And so I guess my question would be, how was the family affected in the short term, uh, as well as as well as long term? I mean, obviously this is something. Uh, what are we 90 years after the after the fact that that you know you as as his grandson is still you know researching and, and learning about so I would be interested in hearing kind of the family side of things and what happened after um, you know they were both assassinated I'll start with Carlos since he was the first one killed a week before a week after he died or before he died his daughter was born wow. and uh, his his daughter uh, ended up moving with his wife to New York, and in fact, I keep in contact with his granddaughter Karen to this day. I just talked to her a few days ago. I'm going to be sending her some some barbecue sauce out there. 
to New York. Uh, she uh, knew, knew very little about her grandfather, Carlo, and was, um, she was really surprised when, when I gave her a book and she was like, wow. She knew a little bit about it, but she was never told the whole truth. Sam had five children. He had uh, three boys and, or three girls and, and two boys. And uh, they moved to San Diego area right after uh, Sam's murder because the Piscopo family lived there. And, and um, my Aunt Josie was one of the Piscopo daughters and they lived their entire lives down in Los Angeles and San Diego area. The Pete Carlino family, which I'm a descendant from, is the, the um, my dad and his brothers, they moved to San Jose, California in 1932, um, when basically um, my grandmother was given 24 hours notice to leave Colorado alive for the family because my uncle Joe had sworn a vendetta against Roma. So, or, or Smaldone or whoever was, my, my, my uncle wouldn't talk about who it was. You know, it's just not something he would say. But that was the reason why they were given. And here's a 16, 17 year old kid making this threat. And, you know, they like, look, you, you have one day, 24 hours, get out of here where we're going to kill y'all. And they took it serious. And that's when they moved yeah. to San Jose. Uh, in 1935, my grandmother passes away of stomach cancer. And those six boys are being raised on their own in San Jose. Uh, they're basically raising themselves. And my dad was raised by his two older brothers, my Uncle Vic and my Uncle Joe. And it's amazing that uh, how well they did, how they turned out, uh, because you know they, so many things could have gone wrong being orphaned at such a young age in the middle of the depression. And all six boys never had a, a record. They did a 180 degree turn from where their father and uncles had come from. And they were all upstanding citizens. Uh, they own businesses. They're charitable, uh, great families. And our legacy still lives today. And, and we have a respected name here in San Jose area. And uh, you know, it's it's it all stems from from my dad and his brothers. Um, and are you named after your great uncle? Actually, I'm named after my dad, Salvatore. Oh, your dad is Sam as well. Okay. Name was Salvatore, but they called him Sammy. Okay. So he eventually just changed his name to Sam, but his real name was Salvatore. And um, I guess I, I have to ask the obvious question. Um, you know, you're, you eventually come along. Uh, and at what point did you find, find out about the family business, so to speak? So I was 18 years old. I was working at a sausage stand that I had at the San Jose flea market. And I was giving samples of sauce. I'd make sausage on Friday nights and then sell it on the weekends. And I was giving out samples and this older gentleman, I, this is 1985. And this gentleman uh, came up and sampled the sausage. I'd say he's probably at least 75 years old. So that puts him being born around 1910. And I gave him the sausage and he goes, oh my God, this is great. He goes, I haven't had sausage this good since time market. And I said, well, this is the time market recipe because that was our family's grocery store that we wow. had. And, and he goes, are you Carlino? And I said, yeah. And he goes, who's your old man? And I said, Sam. He goes, oh, Mickey, I know your dad. Oh, he starts naming off all my, my uncles. And he goes, and I go back to with those boys. He called them boys. He goes, I remember when those boys were back in Colorado. In fact, I used to work for your grandfather. 
And I was like, wow, this guy worked for my grandfather. Yeah, I don't know anything about him. And I said, well, really? And he goes, in fact, I remember the day he was killed. And I go, wow. no, I think you're mistaken. I said, uh, he died of pneumonia. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me, you know, this young kid, idiot. And he goes, pneumonia, my ass. He goes, they shot him up. I go, he died of lead poisoning. And I go, really? And he goes, oh, yeah. He was Colorado's biggest bootlegger. In fact, he owned that state. And that's the one thing I'll never forget when he told me that he, he owned that state. And I didn't understand the gravity of it at that time. And then I asked my dad on the way home, you know, real gingerly about, you know, what year he came out. I just want to go out and ask him, you know, because he'd been keeping it quiet for a reason. I was smart enough not to just lead with that leading question. And so I, I gave him a few little questions like what year you came to San Jose, 1932, what year did your mom die, 35? How'd your mom die? She died of cancer. And your dad, how did, how did he die again? He died of pneumonia. <laughs> but eventually my, you know, it, it got let out that, you know, the, the family knew that, that it wasn't pneumonia and they come clean and they, they explained that they were ashamed of what they come from, what, what they had done. And uh, they never talked about it. Uh, they talked about it amongst themselves. I remember at a family reunion in 1985, hearing all the San Diego cousins, all the Sam's kids and, and, and my dad and his brothers all talking about it. But as soon as the ladies would walk up near the table, they'd stop talking about change the subject. And I thought that was really interesting. It was their way of, I think, protecting the women in a way. I don't think they looked at it as a chauvinistic thing. I think it was more along the lines of, you know, that will keep the women and children you know, protected by not letting them know about this stuff. And I was privy to it because I was, you know, a, a male. And I thought it was really interesting to see that even in 85, how they, they handled when the women would come around, they would stop talking about it. And um, it's interesting uh, to hear you say that they, they would be embarrassed, uh, you know, embarrassed by it or want to, you know, keep it a secret, keep it, keep it hidden. Uh, for for fear of you know having having that uh in their in their familial background be some reflection on on them um once you found out that information how did that affect you if if at all going forward uh it didn't really change until later until after my dad had passed and i had uh discovered some things after he died about what the stories that he had told me about um, uh, getting lost in the Grand Canyon on the way over to California. Uh, and I found the road, it's called Schnebly Hill Road. It's it's outside of, um, it's south of Flagstaff and it's near, uh, oh, that beautiful town in uh, south of Flagstaff. I'm, I'm having a, can't remember it at this point, but there's a, a four by four road that that they took I remember him telling me that story about being terrified that they had this huge 1929 Dodge Senior sedan and they were traveling on this one lane road. And, you know, when one wheel would be off the, the edge of the, the road on turns at some points and he's staring out the window oh, down. God. <laughs> have an eight year old kid, it was, it was terrifying for him. He said that was the most terrifying thing of his life. He always remembered that. But it didn't really affect me uh, 
that much until I started doing a lot more research uh, around 2008, 2009. I started looking, started collecting photos. I found a lot of really great historic photos of our family uh, on historic images on eBay. And I bought up the, the, a lot of these pictures that you see the, that were used in the newspapers. And I own the original copies now. And I paid like eight or $10 a piece for them. They're all gone now. Yeah, I found old newspapers, original newspapers and headlines and, and photos. And uh, it's, it's, it just fueled my fire to, to, to look even more. Uh, one of the things is that drove me to write my book um, was that misinformation that was out there, that's what really yeah. got me frustrated was so much disinformation that, that people were, were, were writing. One guy wrote in his book and he, he wrote, he said that the Carlinos had an olive oil factory in Pueblo and inside their office, he described the office to the T. Oh, they had uh, this old rotary phone and they had this big desk and this and that. I'm like, whoa, how did this guy find out all this? <laughs> I got in contact with the, with, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. I got in contact with the, the, uh, the author and I asked him, I said, how did you find this information out about them being olive oil? I don't have any recollection of that. There's no, and I said, first of all, olives don't grow in Pueblo. It's too cold. And I said, they don't, and I said, in their office, he described their office to a T. And he goes, well, I just kind of made that up because you know, all, all uh, mobsters are in the olive oil business. Oh my God. Wrote a book and he wrote a book. <laughs> He, he's writing a, a factual true crime book and he made that whole part up and i i just went okay this is ridiculous you know to to put that kind of information in and just make it up you know just well because vito corleone had an olive oil factory you know uh, the jenko yeah. olive oil factory and the godfather let's let's let you know the carlinos have one too it, that's just stupid so that kind of stuff help fuel my fire another thing i read was that sam's in the gang war sam's head was cut off and and put on a stake at the end of the bridge to ward off other gangs and you know crap like that it just it, it really pissed me off so that helped fuel the fire for me to to find the truth and the more i kept digging the more i found and it's amazing since i wrote the book even more things have come, like especially the Baltimore Selly file landed in my lap when I was on my tour in Pueblo, my book tour. Absolutely amazing to find that information. And I'm going to be working with, be doing something with that in the future, but that, that's some amazing stuff. So uh, to those listening, to those watching, I'm holding up uh, Sam's book, uh, tremendous, tremendous read. Uh, like I said uh, at the end of the last video, there's a, there are a couple of books out there that if you want to really have a great understanding of the history from uh, the the early 1900s going all the way um, up into the 1970s, 80s, uh, this book covers I would call it almost part part one. Uh, you know, with respect to getting to the small dome era and then of course dick Kreck's book on the the small dones um had to do a lot of supplementary research with that um 
because there were a lot of uh, you know a lot of uh, a lot of things in in that book that didn't get covered off on uh, in nearly as much detail, like a, a man being put in a lake uh, and weighed down while he was still alive uh, and and murdered uh, in pretty pretty heinous way. Um, but anyways, both of those books are are interesting. Go out and buy Sam's book. I'm going to uh, include a link uh, in the description of the video on YouTube. Uh, but uh, if you're listening to the audio version, it's uh, Colorado's Carlino Brothers, A Bootlegging Empire by Sam Carlino. So you can get it on Amazon. Uh, pretty, pretty fair price. Uh, uh, I believe it's priced really well. So Jacob, I have a website, carlinobrothers.com. Sign copy. Uh, and it'll actually be cheaper than Amazon and they can get it. There you go. <laughs> and it's signed and it's signed. Those are better. Those are better. Um, well, Sam, thank you so much uh, for being uh, my first interview. I think the interesting thing, I don't know if I told you this or not when we talked before the episode, uh, when I was doing my research, I found a video of you giving a presentation uh, on YouTube. And I said to myself, you know, it'd be really cool to interview Sam one day he seems seems like a an interesting interesting guy you wrote this this book that i've just read cover to cover uh and lo and behold uh you actually it's like the it's maybe your ears were burning or something uh and you reached out to me and and we connected and that's how this this interview came to came together uh and i'm uh you know i'm just you know happy to make the connection and happy to have uh had the chance to to talk and to um you know, tell your grandfather's uh, story because, you know, it's really, uh, really interesting. I feel like, you know, in the mob genre, people tend to focus on Boston, uh, uh, New York, Chicago, New Orleans, uh, kind of the main cities. And you don't hear about these, um, these other places when in fact things were just as bonkers here as everywhere else. It just didn't get the, the national credibility. So they're definitely ruthless. Definitely. Uh, well, Sam, thank you for coming on. Is there anything, uh, anything that you'd like to, to, to plug before we close? I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity to come on. And again, if you get a chance, uh, check out Thomas Hunt's uh, The Informer magazine and Michael Harrod's working on a, a book that predates mine in the Pueblo Aguilar, Walsenburg area and talks about the black hand of Southern Colorado. And it's going to be a really well-researched book that Michael O'Hare is working on right now and uh, uh, it's it's going to be amazing so well just I want to thank you again for the opportunity to come on and, and talk about this and and this has been a great opportunity thank you all right uh, and that's it for this episode uh, if you're watching on YouTube uh, again I'm just going to employ you to uh, like the video subscribe uh, hit that bell for notifications. Help me feed the algorithm, get more views, grow the channel. Uh, if you're listening on the audio version, Apple Podcasts, leave me a review, leave me a rating. Tell me how you think uh, I did, whether good, bad, or ugly. Um, just let me know how you think I'm doing uh, with the podcast. Uh, but otherwise, I'm going to close like I normally, uh, normally close and just thank everybody for listening.